Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Alzheimer's disease affects more than 5 million Americans. While there have been some advancements in the last 10 years to help patients manage symptoms, there is an urgent need to find effective disease-modifying therapies for Alzheimer's disease. In today's episode of Neuropathways, we'll discuss the developing effective therapies and failures in Alzheimer's disease management. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Babak Tuzi join me for today's conversation. Dr. Tuzi is a staff physician and head of the clinical trials program in the Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Babak, welcome to Neuropathways. Uh, Good afternoon, Steve. Thank you for having me today. Today, we're discussing therapies for treatment of Alzheimer's disease management. Can you set the stage for us? What is the current landscape on Alzheimer's drug development, specifically immunotherapies, vaccines, or other targets? Um, Steve, we haven't had any new drugs approved since 2003, and there are no approved medications to change the biology of Alzheimer's disease or what they call it disease-modifying treatments. Um, if you look at the clinical trials registered in 2020, we see that basically a few hundred interventional trials, there are about 120 unique agents to treat Alzheimer's disease. A small group of them are focused based on symptomatic treatment, such as uh, management of behavioral symptoms and neuropsychiatric symptoms. And some of them are focused basically as cognitive enhancers. But majority of them are focused on disease-modifying treatment. The target of this treatment from Alzheimer's disease range from early stage, even preclinical, to mild and moderate advanced stage of Alzheimer's disease. And they have different targets over the time. Um, for a while, it was largely focused on amyloid pathology, in a less degree, tau pathology, which is another hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. But over the past few years, we can see a shift in academia as we can see the focus and also industry and funding agencies, they're focused on other targets, like you know, inflammation, other abnormal proteins, the deposition of the protein E, and synaptic plasticity. Interestingly enough, actually about 40% of this medication that are in clinical trials now, they're repurposed agents, basically approved for another indication other than non-Alzheimer. To go a little bit further, uh, the PRIME trial was a late phase one clinical trial looking at aducanumab. Would you like to talk about that uh, medication and the use of uh, amyloid targeting drugs? We look at the phase two trial. As you know, before getting approval, you have to have this phase three clinical trial with positive and strong evidence to submit to FDA. So if you look at the 17 disease-modifying agents we have in phase two trial, at least five of them are this biological therapies targeting amyloid. You know, one of them is aducanumab, the one that is used in primary study. But there are a few others, like agantronumab, solanazumab, and another one, BAM2401. And basically, the concept behind this is based on immunotherapy, like, you know, which involves immunological reaction to exert this disease-modifying effect on whatever underlying process that causes cell death. So traditionally, we have active therapy and passive immunotherapies. So this is an active vaccination, you know, like we hear about finding a vaccine for a new infection nowadays. 
the patient, you know, usually inoculated with an amyloid protein fragment, and we expect them to produce an immunologic response. And we suppose that response remove all these amyloid that accumulate in the brain. So the earlier of these ones uh, was in 2001, which wasn't that successful, especially some people develop encephalitis. And since then, more recently, we have two more active vaccinations. But because of that, not the perfect results we got in 2001, a lot of scientists switched to passive immunotherapies. Basically, these monoclonal antibodies are produced artificially outside of the body, and they introduce intravenously or subcutaneously on a regular basis. So that was the case for aducanumab in primer study, and later developed a phase three trial, which we call it engage and emerge. And interestingly, when they tried this kind of amyloid monoclonal antibody therapy, they found a new side effect, which is we call it ARIA for amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. In those ARIA effects, over the time, we learn how to manage it better and how to monitor better with a repeated MRI, so we're a little more comfortable with this side effect. It's kind of acceptable at this point. And what else we learned from this immunotherapy? If they were given earlier, it seems we have better response. So what I mean by response, also biological response, which is removal of amyloid, and also some benefit in cognitive or activities of daily living of the patient. So as you know, at the Canemab, you might hear in the news that it's one of the medications that's submitted for FDA for proposal as to be used for Alzheimer's disease in general, which is a little bit interesting because the trial that followed primary study, Emerge and Engage, the focus in mild cognitive impairment and early stage of Alzheimer's disease, and patients should have had a positive biomarker, the concept we can talk about it. So basically, there's some confirmation that is one of those hallmark of Alzheimer's disease, amyloid plaques or tangles exist. Somehow the indication or proposal of the sponsor was Alzheimer's disease in general without any defining characteristics. Interesting enough, the study actually was terminated early due to interim fatality analysis. There were two parallel studies, but the post-hoc analysis basically showed actually one of the trials, one of the arm of the trial, people who received the highest dose, which is 10 milligram per kilogram, they showed benefit in primary outcome, which is clinical dementia rating the scale, and also secondary outcome, with some support in secondary outcome. It was not the case with another trial that going along the study, we call it engaged study, but the sponsor argued that if the study lasted longer and more people have received this highest dose, they might have received the same benefit. Um, there was a committee, advisory committee recently. They did not see the same eye to eye with the sponsor and they thought maybe it's not clinically effective as they were hopeful. Um, something interesting about this medication, kind of the first time we ever have a neurology division of FDA that FDA and the sponsor work together to prepare that briefcase of results to submit to committee. So FDA quite involved, and the clinicians even frequently suggested that they think the medication was strong enough and the clinical evidence they need, they have it. So it will be interesting in the next few months to see are we going to have the first disease-modifying treatment for Alzheimer's disease or not. Very good. It seems that uh, earlier intervention is critical for treatment of Alzheimer's disease, as you just alluded to. Uh, this requires better diagnosis, uh, early intervention. 
Could you tell us what biomarkers are currently being developed to help with early diagnosis? So traditionally, you know, we have this, you know, many in primary care or general neurology. Traditionally, we do that as most common cause of reversible causes of memory loss, you know, is it B12 deficiency or thyroid problem. And usually we need some imaging findings such as CAT scan or MRI to rule out a stroke or other reversible causes that may see cognitive impairment. But what happened over the last 10 years is not part of the clinical workup usually, part of a research workup. We have these biomarkers to find out if any sign or presence of hallmark Alzheimer's disease. So in general, you can see three categories of it. One is that to look at if there is a sign of amyloid pathology, basically. We have PET imaging, and now it's approved by FDA. It's almost a decade now. It's not used uh, commonly during our practice uh, due to insurance coverage, etc. but we have this amyloid imaging at this point. Not that long ago, we also get approval for tau imaging. So we can uh, confirm the presence of tau tangles in amyloid uh, in the brain of patients with Alzheimer's disease. Aside from that, several spinal fluid through lumbar puncture also has been used. They're not approved yet. So there are different, of course, different assay exists. And the concept behind it is that, you know, the monomer soluble form of amyloid, especially at beta amyloid 42, which is the one that most likely to form the plaque down the road, they start going down in CSF of the patient who develop Alzheimer's disease. Meanwhile, we know for the tau and also related tau going up, which is a sign of basically of neurodegeneration or tau pathy in the patient with Alzheimer's disease. So occasionally, even we use it at this point, definitely for research purposes. And in some cases, some institute use it also for clinical diagnosis. So doing CSF analysis based on a P-tau level, total tau level, and beta amyloid 42 level for the ratio between them. Well, you know, I'm getting older, so I'm very interested in this question. And that is, are there any current clinical trials focused on prevention of Alzheimer's disease? Interesting point. So we talk about this amyloid hypothesis and how people develop this passive immunotherapy. We talk about how earlier is better to approach these patients. So one of these compounds called BAN2401 actually focusing on this group of patients. These are healthy subjects supposedly at risk. And what I mean by risk, uh, as part of a screening process, they're going to go through some amyloid imaging. If there's sign of some amyloid plaque, not to level that missing dementia patient, we consider them higher risk to develop Alzheimer's down the road. And this patient can receive this medication. It's quite a straightforward trial, basically. Half of the group are going to receive active medication, which is band 2401, and half of the group only receive placebo, followed in an 18-month period, to see how it does, and also offer them an open label after that for a couple of years to see if you are able to slow down. And the primary outcome for that is basic clinical dementia rating scale, which is tell us how impaired patients are as time goes by, or how impaired they become as time goes by. So before we sign off, are there any additional takeaways that you would like to share on where you see treatment and management for Alzheimer's disease moving in the future? Alzheimer's and most dementia have very complex pathology and in mixed pathology many times. And I feel any treatment we consider should have multiple targets, ideally. Having said that, I don't believe any future therapy of Alzheimer's will be a one drug fix all models. The treatment should be customized to subgroup of patients. So something like a concept of precision medicine, 
you know, the fields like, you know, breast cancer, they're already narrowed down to molecular and genetic level. So we know it's a heterogeneity existing patient with Alzheimer's disease. So I'm hoping we identify this subgroup based on the genetics or the stage of disease or the gender, we have a more precise treatment for these kind of patients. Are there any additional uh, future biomarkers that are in the pipeline that you'd like to discuss? So basically, as I mentioned, currently biomarkers are based on some imaging, like a PET imaging or CSF or lumbar puncture. But we're always looking for plasma biomarkers, like a simple blood test. Of course, that makes them more affordable. We can easily repeat them a few times, and we can easily track uh, the process of disease or the treatment that we're using it. So a few plasma biomarkers have got a lot of attention over the last two years. But the thought of it four years ago maybe seems impossible, but I'm not surprised within a year or two we have a blood biomarkers, basically a blood test for diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, one of them is, uh, we call it plasma beta amyloid 42 to plasma beta amyloid 40 ratio. Basically, this two monomer or soluble form of a beta amyloid, and we expect that the ratio help us to define who's most likely will have amyloid plaque or will develop amyloid plaques down the road. So it's a good indicator for amyloid pathology. Um, the other one get a lot of attention, I guess, over the last year is that we call it plasma P tau 217. It's a very promising indicator, both for animal pathology and also tau pathology. It's a highly accurate and discriminate between tau positive and tau negative patient who have amyloid uh, tau imaging, and also in amyloid positive and amyloid negative patient head imaging. Uh, it was interesting enough, correlate quite well with clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and non-Alzheimer's dementia. So I can see one of them, P217, very likely we see in the future more about it. And the third one is not indicative of Alzheimer's disease necessarily. It's NFL, not talking about Brown and the Steelers team. It's a neurofilament, is indicative of axonal injury neurogeneration. It's not a specific to Alzheimer's. We've seen other neurological disorder and even aging but it's had a potential to inform the prognosis for patients. So that's a different story, having diagnosis and how's prognosis going to be, how much damage has been done to axonal level. So Dr. Tuzi, could you outline some of the difficulties and concerns about enrolling patients in clinical trials for Alzheimer's disease? Of course, when patients get screened or recruited for randomized trial, we should always consider thousands of patients should come to show interest. And out of them, few hundred may first the qualification based on cognitive testing and further down based on micro various biomarkers, with a small number of people will get to this clinical trial. So I think it's on all of us as a provider, not necessarily dementia specialists, to encourage people to consider as an option to be part of clinical trials. So hopefully we have one day we have some disease modifying treatment. Well, Babak, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate your time and insights on the landscape of Alzheimer's disease in 2020. Thank you. Okay, okay, Dave. Thank you for having me today. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.org. 
clevelandclinic.org slash Nero or follow us on Twitter at CLE Clinic MD, all one word. And thank you for listening.